Author by the name of Andy Weir asks you to imagine for a moment that something is infecting, something is happening to our son that is making it drastically go out. And so the scientists all determined that after a series of decades, that son is no longer going to be able to provide the energy and the warmth and the light that it normally does on earth and that earth as we know it will not exist anymore. In his book, Hail Mary, there's an opportunity for humanity to go on a rescue mission into deep space to find out what is happening to our son and to see if there is anything that can be done about it. And on this Hail Mary mission, on this rescue opportunity, they need to send a handful of humans into deep, deep space, and it's going to take a long time to get there. Now, Andy Weir, as an author, kind of emphasizes the science in the science fiction that he writes. He is to science fiction what Tom Clancy is to espionage. He gets really technical. He gets into the weeds of the science. You almost figure that he's kind of a frustrated science teacher that's trying to find a compelling way to teach the science to people through a novel. And what the science tells us is that if we tried to, as humanity, to put three or four people into a very small space for a long period of time, that the mission will never be successful because they're going to kill one another. That there's something in human nature... It's actually a field that they know from biosphere experiments and remote locations in Antarctica. It's a whole field of study that's called confined environmental psychology. And the bottom line of confined environmental psychology is this. You put a small group of people together and you lock the door and you put them together for a long period of time, they break into factions They start to hate one another, and eventually they want to kill one another. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) And so, in order for the mission to be successful, he has to put them in unconscious state for the journey and then to awake them when they get there. Otherwise, there's no way it'll work. When I was reading the novel... I was thinking to myself, you know, there is another solution besides unconsciousness. It's called forgiveness. And it's a story that's real life about a real family that we're going to see today. We're in the midst of a series of messages where we're talking about quest. This is a year-long quest and journey for us, and we are concluding our first segment of 11, our first chapter, if you will, of 11. We've been talking about promise throughout the book of Genesis, and if you bear with us for this next week and do your reading for this next week, you'll have made it for almost you know, 10% of the journey. And we're so excited for us to get to see how the promise of God is available to us throughout the ages. The promise of his blessing, the promise of his presence, the promise of his provision, and that he will be our God and that we will be his people. But in the midst of all the promises of what we see in the book of Genesis, there is a lingering question. 
After Genesis's chapters of one through three, which lay the foundation of why are we here and what went wrong, towards the beginning of chapter four, there is one question that hangs above them all. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a question in the midst of the Cain and Abel murder, confinement environmental psychology. It's a question that isn't answered until the very end. And that's what we're gonna get to see. So I need to kind of set the stage for what is the longest section of scripture in the book of Genesis. Joseph's story in Genesis is longer than creation and the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel all combined. This is the longest part of the book of Genesis. And I think you will agree with me and Andrew Lloyd Webber, who wrote the musical, that it's one of the best stories in the Bible. And it all starts with a family where a father plays favorites. And the way that he shows his favoritism for his favorite son of 12 is that he buys him what our NIV translation says is an ornate coat. Now, I scoured the internet, and this is one that I really wanted to wear for you this morning. You can actually buy this coat and wear it to parties. If I had had enough forethought, I would have considered this a work expense, and I would have got that and worn this for this morning's message. But I didn't think that far ahead in time. And so, Jacob showers his favoritism upon Joseph and his many-colored coat, his ornate coat, and in doing so, creates a, a hostile family environment. And this is the way that Genesis describes it. Now, Israel, who is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. One of the things that I hope you take away from your reading of the book of Genesis is that it just makes you feel better about your own dysfunctional family. So Joseph does not handle the favoritism very well either. He doesn't handle it with humility and deference. Oh no, Joseph has these dreams and he loves to tell these dreams to his brothers. He tells of one dreams where he's like a bigger shaft of wheat in a field and all of the other brothers are like shafts of wheat that are bowing down to his. How do you think this went over well at the dinner table? It probably didn't go over well at all. But there were many dreams by which Joseph talked about his superiority and how one day they were all gonna kind of worship him and bow down to him and serve him. And his brothers hated his clothes, hated his attitude, hated his father's favoritism for him. And one day when they were far enough away from home, they decide they've had enough. And they throw him into a cistern and leave him for dead. And then Judah, being the entrepreneurial spirit that he is, he says, wait a minute, why would we leave him for dead over here? There's a traveling group of Ishmaelites that are headed on their way to Egypt. Let's sell him so we can at least get something from him. And so they strip him of his cloak and they sell him into slavery 
and they think that they'll never see him again. And they go home with Joseph's famous favoritism cloak, and they put animal's blood on it, and they take it to their father, and they show him, and he weeps, and he grieves. And Joseph finds his way into Egypt, and he's in the servitude of a military officer's home by the name of Potiphar. And when he's in Potiphar's household, Potiphar discovers that, that this Joseph guy is not just some privileged, entitled brat from another country, that he's got real skills, and that everything that he manages, he manages well. And he puts him as kind of the chief steward over every aspect of the property of his home. He makes sure that, that Joseph is in charge of everything because when Joseph's in charge of it, he manages it well and he grows the investment. Well, the Bible tells us that Joseph is hot. That's not exactly what it says in the Hebrew, but he's really, really good looking and built well. And Potiphar's wife has eyes for Joseph. And in a story that in Sunday school, that's very hard to depict well. Joseph tries to run away from the advances of Potiphar's wife, and he only escapes by leaving his coat behind. And what happens is, is that Joseph this time has lost his coat again, and in losing his coat again, when he leaves that behind, she uses it as the source of a false accusation of sexual assault. And Potiphar becomes angry. And because of Potiphar's connections, he throws Joseph into a maximum security prison that's specifically for the king's prisoners. And so Joseph is at a low point. And yet the warden of the prison finds that Joseph is a really good manager. And he empowers Joseph to help to manage the prisoners. And Joseph is a person of great discernment, especially with problems that people are having and with their dreams. And so the prisoners come to Joseph with their dreams. And, and then eventually officials from Pharaoh's court come to Joseph with dreams. And he becomes kind of known for what his discernment is like. And then after two years in prison, Pharaoh has a disturbing dream. And the rumor mill is, is that this Joseph guy can help. And so the most powerful figure of the most powerful empire in that time summons Joseph and asks for Joseph to interpret the dream. Joseph does, and it turns out that Joseph is not just good at dream interpretation, he's like a walking farmer's almanac and Pharaoh puts him in charge of what Joseph interprets in the dream is that there's going to be years of plenty and then there is going to be years of famine and that Pharaoh needs to save now. And that's what Joseph does. On behalf of the kingdom, he makes sure that they will have enough grain in the storehouses for the time when they do not have enough. Well, this famine hits home way back in Canaan where Jacob 
and the other 11 sons find that they don't have any capacity to make food, but they have enough wealth to go to Egypt in order to be able to buy some grain. And so the brothers go off in order to go to Egypt, and they come before the prince of Egypt that they don't recognize is Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them, and Joseph puts them through a series of tests, a test having to do with silver. Are they honest? Because they sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. A test that has to do with the youngest son, Benjamin, and whether or not they will look out for Benjamin or whether they'd be willing to leave him behind and look out for their own self-interest. And what we discover is that Judah, who was willing to sell Joseph into slavery, has had a complete 180 and that he is willing to offer himself in the place of the youngest Benjamin. And then there comes a moment after all of this back and forth where Joseph decides to reveal himself to his brothers. I'm going to encourage you in this moment to reach for your Bibles with that backstory, the one that you've brought with you, hopefully one of the quest ones that you have, if not the Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack in front of you. And with all of that building up, we're going to turn to one of the most beautiful stories of reconciliation and forgiveness in the Bible. This is Genesis chapter 45, and we're going to start in the first verse. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph, and when he made himself known to his brothers, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there have been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father. And say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. And you shall live in the region of Goshen. And be near me, you and your children and your grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves. And so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt, about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him 
weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Keep your Bibles open. I would encourage you to pull out a pen because this is a story thousands of years before Jesus, a story of how reconciliation works. And there's seven little dimensions in this ancient story that are just as relevant to you and your situations and your friends and your loved ones and your family members, seven little pearls of wisdom about how reconciliation works. And the first one is to get vulnerable. If you look at verses one and two, you'll notice that Joseph sends away his court. He sends away all of his officials. He sends away all of the people that are there to protect them. And he gets vulnerable with his brothers. These are the people who left him for dead and sold him into slavery. And he has the courage to be alone with them. And what does he lead with? He leads with his tears. Reconciliation always begins with someone getting vulnerable. Reconciliation always begins when you stop trying to protect yourself and you're willing to be hurt. First step is vulnerability. The second step is to get curious. Notice in verse 3 that Joseph, even though he is the prince of Egypt, he leads with questions. When I'm working with couples and they're struggling to deal with conflict, one of the things that I try to help them to do is just to say, the next day, just try to ask one sincere question of the other. And then the next day, try to ask two The next day, try to ask three. Try to build up your curiosity, your inquiry quotient. Because I believe if you're willing to get vulnerable and you're willing to get curious, that's how bridges of intimacy and connection are able to be built. Reconciliation three happens in honesty. If you'll look at verse four with me, you'll notice that Joseph does not sugarcoat what happened. He says, You sold me into slavery. You sold me into Egypt. Joseph is not shying from the truth here. Real reconciliation can never happen without honesty. If you were unwilling to take the honest approach, it will be artificial harmony and you will never get to the place of forgiveness and reconciliation. If you look at verses 5 through 8 in the text here, you will see that it repeats over and over again, saving or deliverance three times. It talks about how God sent three times. One of the most remarkable qualities about Joseph is this. Joseph has an incredible God awareness. When back in the Potiphar story, when uh, Potiphar's wife It continues to hit on Joseph, and he keeps spurning those advances. When he he rejects those advances, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm not going to do this because I don't want to get in trouble. 
or I might get caught. Joseph says, how could I do this offense against God? Even in the heat of the moment, Joseph has this incredible God awareness that that God is at work in his life. And I truly believe that in order for reconciliation to happen between people who are in very different places or at odds or not talking to one another, that it is going to take an awareness of the big picture and God's presence to get to that breakthrough kind of moment. The next step of what we see in reconciliation in this beautiful story in Joseph is, is to get urgent. Here is what I have noticed over and over again in failed reconciliation attempts. And that is, is, is that people are like, yeah, I think that forgiveness is a good idea. But the person who's been offended in the party, they actually enjoy hanging what the person did wrong above the other person's head. And in doing so, there's no urgency to forego that power. And there are many of us in this room right now that prefer the power of the offense and being able to hang that over the other person than we do making the relationship right. And so there's got to be, if reconciliation's gonna happen, yes, it may take some time, but it is also gonna have to have the fire of urgency in there or you're never gonna get there to that point. Reconciliation also requires that we get generous. In the story, you notice that in this point, before the brothers have done anything to deserve this, that Joseph makes the same promise to his brothers that God promises Abraham in the near sacrifice of Isaac, that I will provide for you. You ever seen those bumper stickers that say, my money and my kid go to such and such a school? That is built right out of the wisdom of Jesus that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you send your son or your daughter or your grandkid to a school, your treasure is leaving and your heart's going to follow. If you start writing checks to such and such a school because you are paying for that tuition, all of a sudden you're going to find yourself wanting to buy a t-shirt and rooting for that school when they play in sporting contests. Here's my point. You don't wait till someone deserves it in order to give. If you want reconciliation to happen, you have to give first without feeling it. Some people say, I'll give when I feel moved. That's exactly the opposite of what the gospel is. You give first because that is what God has done for us. And then lastly, in this beautiful story of reconciliation, You have to get close. Joseph keeps saying, come closer, come closer. And then he puts his arms around Benjamin. And then it says that he weeps and he kisses and he talks with all of his brothers. Isn't that an amazing story of reconciliation? And if we just slow down our reading of the Bible enough, there are these ancient seeds of wisdom that are available to you and me that are as relevant today as they were oh so long ago. And I feel like I have to say this. 
This story is predicated on reconciliation being a wise move. Joseph goes through a period of discernment with his brothers. And I want to be very clear in this. Forgiveness is always required of followers of Jesus. Forgive us our debts, we pray, as what? Right. We can't ask God for forgiveness and not forgive others. Forgiveness is always commanded, regardless of the situation that you could paint for me. You're called to forgive. Reconciliation is not always possible. Reconciliation is a two-way street, and sometimes reconciliation may not be what could happen. And so we recognize our own frailty and our own human limitations. But here's my point. My point is that we give up far too easily on forgiveness and reconciliation. And C.S. Lewis famously said, everybody thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. My friends, I told you at the beginning that the question that hangs over the book of Genesis is, am I my brother's keeper? And Genesis' answer to that question in the Joseph story is, the prince is my brother. And by the time you get to the New Testament, and when the Apostle Paul is giving his great exhortation to all of the people of the church of Rome, What then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In Romans chapter 8, he answers the question by saying, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In that passage in Romans chapter 8, what you will discover is that it is not that we survive these things. It is not that we maintain these things. It is not that we're able to conquer these things on our own. No, we are able to be conquerors because of the one who loved us. Joseph's brothers did not deserve what they got. And that's exactly what grace is. Grace is that moment where you realize that you've been a spoiled, entitled brat like Joseph, or you've been a conniving, manipulative man like his father was, or you've had murderous or envious tendencies like his brothers. And in spite of all of that, God saves them. Philip Yancey puts it this way, in the final analysis, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. And when Joseph finally came to the place of forgiving his brothers, the hurt did not disappear, but the burden of being their judge fell away. For the biblical Joseph, who had borne a well-deserved grudge against his brothers, forgiveness spilled out in the form of tears and groans. These, like childbirth, were harbingers of liberation, and through them Joseph gained at last his freedom. He named his son what? Manasseh, which means 
one who causes to be forgotten. For Joseph, God was his God in such a way that no matter how slighted he had been, no matter how grave the injustice, that God's grace was sufficient to cause him to forget. How have you been hurt? What's your confinement? What's your Hail Mary rescue mission? Reconciliation is possible. Forgiveness is required. The prince is your brother. Let's pray. God, will you teach us to be vulnerable and curious and honest and aware and to have a sense of urgency and to lead with generosity and have the courage and the audacity to get close. Lord, you ask us, are we going to be willing to keep our brothers and sisters? And you, as the prince of all, have been willing to come in the form of Jesus Christ to make sure that nothing separates us from your love. Lord, I pray that your grace would be so huge in our lives and that your presence would be near to us that you would cause us to forget. And so turn rescue missions of Hail Marys, of reconciliation from this room. Turn them not into acts of unconsciousness, but active forgiveness. Help us, God, as we recognize your promises that this is a part of our quest and that it's essential so that we may follow you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.